So we'll do a little bit of teaching time on the subject of what happens when they don't believe the Bible and you're evangelizing. But I do want to give you a little bit of a preview um, of the weeks to come. I'm really excited about what's coming up in evangelism class. Next week, um, I'll be with you again, evangelizing Roman Catholics. The week after that, Garrett's going to be here evangelizing Mormons. The week after that, Mornay's going to be here evangelizing secular-minded people. The week after that, evangelizing Jehovah's Witnesses. You'll, you'll forgive me, I don't remember who's teaching that. So you can kind of see how we've been covering a kind of theology of evangelism over the last several weeks, kind of practical steps about how to do it. Now we're going to look at specific types of people that we're going to come across and that we already in a lot of ways have relationships with, I'm sure. And so um, today we're thinking about evangelizing when they don't believe the Bible. And the reason is because evangelism, talking about evangelism, raises this question, right? Um, well, what if they don't believe the Bible? One of the things we've been saying is that evangelism, um, you know, a good definition of that would be teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. And um, that comes from Max Stiles in the little red book, Evangelism, that we handed out last fall. And so when he says, when he says gospel, what we've said in this class is one of the best ways to summarize that is, is that fourfold God, man, Christ response. So when we evangelize, we're going to be talking about God and His holiness. We're going to be talking about um, mankind, humans, men and women, and their sinfulness. Uh, we're going to be talking about Christ and His sufficient work as our only Savior in His life and death and resurrection and ascension and second coming. Right? And we're going to be talking about response, the necessary response of repentance and faith. Um, but one of the things that that does is it assumes some things. This is one of the first things on your handout. Evangelism assumes the source of our message. So, so everything I just said there, um, as you kind of unpack those points when you're talking with people, you're going to be talking about things that you know from the Bible, that you know from Scripture, right? So it assumes the source of our message. Well, it also assumes the authority for our message. It assumes the source and the authority of our message. The Bible is God's Word to which everyone must submit, us, Everyone will ever meet, right? As our statement of faith says, um, it reveals the principles by which God will judge us. And that means not just us Christians, but us everyone, every creature. And so the, so the Bible, as God's word, it's, it's that thing to which everyone must submit. It's the authority for our evangelism. But, <clears throat> kind of like I've alluded to, that raises a question, which has come up in God's kind providence twice in the last three classes by different people. So it felt like a good time to address it more fully. And obviously the question is, well, what if they don't believe the Bible? What do you do when they don't believe the Bible? And like I said, talking about evangelism tends to raise that question. Um, so, so we want to think a little bit more about that. And we're going to do it in three steps. Um, we're going to do it in, in three steps. I'm going to try and unpack, I think, what the Scripture teaches most fully on answering that question. What happens when they don't believe? Um, so bear with me. We're going to kind of weave our way through some Scriptures and build a sort of argument, block by block, um, to answer what happens when they don't believe. What do we do? And where we want to start first is with God. It's, it's always a good thing in your thinking to start with God. And so specifically this morning, what we want to think about is, how is our God different than all other would-be gods, what the Bible calls idols? How is our God different? And I think God's Word answers this question in Jeremiah chapter 10. So turn there with me. Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. 
and I'll read that. This is Jeremiah 10, 1 through 13. It says, Hear the word that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, Learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammers and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. They are the work of the craftsmen and of the hands of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are the work of skilled men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth the wind from his storehouses." And so here we see one primary difference that the Bible gives between the true God and the gods. God speaks, idols cannot speak. That's the next blank on your handout. God speaks, idols cannot speak. And you can see that most clearly if you compare verses 1 and 5 of what we just read. Remember it here what the Lord speaks, thus says the Lord. And look down at verse 5. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field and they cannot speak. It even then says in verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. So, so he's making an argument. The reason the Lord is the true God, he speaks. No other God, lowercase g, can speak. Right? So I just want to see you how much this shows up and sh- show you, want you to see how much this shows up in the Bible. So let's hear a few other passages. Turn to, turn to Isaiah 44. That's back one book if you're in Jeremiah. Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. It's on page 604 in my Bible, but I don't know if that helps anyone of you. Um, Isaiah 44, verses 6 through 8. Would someone read that? So again, what's at stake here is 
Who is God, and is there anyone like Him? The answer is, of course, no. But the reason for the answer is what's, what's interesting to us this morning for our purposes. God alone can proclaim and declare. That's what we just heard. And He's, he's challenging all other would-be gods to do the same. Proclaim it. Declare it. But only God can declare what is to come and what will happen. And what's interesting is, the important point here, it's not just that God knows the future, it's that God can speak the future before it happens in such a way that it will happen. Let's see this in one more place. Turn to Psalm 115. Psalm 115. Verses 2 through 5. Psalm 115, verses 2 through 5. Pursuing, will you read that? Sure. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. And we could go on, but again, you're seeing this theme. And it's a theme in Scripture. That God speaks, false gods cannot speak. False gods don't live, they're not personal. But God is a living, personal being who speaks and acts. So this is, this is the pattern in the scriptures. And that's our first point. One reason God himself gives, that he is the true God, is that he is the only God who speaks. Now, we need to think about what God says about his own word. So interestingly, one of the things God says when he speaks is he speaks about his own speaking. He speaks about his word. So what's God's perspective on when he speaks? One of the things we just heard from Psalm 115 that Pursuun read in verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And one of the ways God gets what he wants is he speaks. God accomplishes his purposes through his word. So turn back to Isaiah chapter 55 this time. Isaiah 55. We'll see this in Scripture. God accomplishes His purposes through His Word. And somebody read Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Yeah, so God's word goes out from his mouth, he, he speaks it, and it doesn't return to him empty or void. Rather, God's word does God's work. It accomplishes his purpose. It does the thing for which it was sent. So, so the word of God does the work of God. This is the next blank on your handout. The word does the work. And while we're at it, let's look at Jesus' view of God's word. In Matthew chapter 22, see what Jesus says and thinks about God's word. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 23. I'm not going to read the whole passage. You could later, and it would be fruitful for you. Matthew 22, 23 through 33. There's a, 
there's a story recorded for us here of some Sadducees. Sadducees notoriously don't believe that there's a resurrection of the dead. They come up to Jesus to question Jesus. And the question they're asking is trying to prove their theology, trying to catch him, trying to trick him. Uh, if he answers our question about divorce and remarriage, this will prove that there's no resurrection. Right? Look at how Jesus responds. His response starts in verse 29. He tells them, no, 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 you misunderstand because you don't understand God's power or God's word. But then look at verse 31 and just stare at this with me. I think this is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. Jesus says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? And then he goes on to quote Exodus chapter 3, verses six, verse 6, which is, as you know, a conversation between God and Moses. So, verse 32, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's God speaking to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. That's what Jesus quotes. So, What's significant is that in one sense, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's not God speaking to Jesus' audience. It's God speaking to Moses. But that's not how Jesus speaks about God's word, is it? This is fascinating. Have you not read what God spoke to you? He says thousands of years later to a different group of people. It's interesting because we would expect him to say, have you not read what God wrote? Because you read things that are written down. But he doesn't say that either. He says, have you not read what God spoke? And it's not to Moses, it's to you. So what God, according to Jesus, what God said to Moses is God speaking to the Sadducees who are questioning Jesus. Jesus sees scripture as God's living speech to the people right in front of him. This is the highest view of Scripture imaginable. Nobody's got a higher view of the Bible than Jesus. So the Word, according to Jesus, is from God, and it's God speaking to the heart in all ages. That's our second point. First, the God who speaks. Second, what God says about His Word. Third, there's a lot of people who don't believe any of this. At one point in your life, maybe you didn't believe any of this. Some of you, by God's grace and His kindness, don't remember a time when you didn't believe any of this, which, praise God, that's amazing. I wish that was my testimony in a lot of ways, but it's not. I vividly remember when I didn't believe any of this. Some of you will be like me in that. Praise God He saved us. Now we do. Well, there's still a lot of people out there who don't believe any of this, and we're going to run into them in, in our evangelism. We're going to encounter them. Some of them are our friends and family and co-workers. So what do we do if they don't believe the Bible? Well, I think in answering that question fully, the third step this morning is we want to think about how someone who doesn't believe comes to believe. How does somebody who doesn't believe come to believe? And if I could just say it in a sentence, it'd, it'd be, this would be my answer. Believing the Bible is God's word is a miracle that God alone brings about in people. I'll say it again. Believing the Bible is God's word is a miracle that God alone brings about in people. So the fact is that God himself must do it. If we're to see any fruit in our evangelism, God must bring growth. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at 1 Corinthians 3. We talked about God's role and our role. We water, we plant. God has to bring growth. Only God can bring growth. 
God gives new life. God gives eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. This is the only way people come to believe the Bible. So let's see this in Scripture. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 5 and 6. I'll read that. This is 2 Corinthians 4, 5 and 6. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. Verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, everybody in this room who's a Christian has become a servant of Christ, proclaiming Him as Lord, like the passage says. And the verses we just heard, verse 6 especially, tells us the spiritual reality behind that transition. When you went from non-Christian to, non from non -Christian, to Christian, <laughs> um, just like in creation, when God spoke and it was, let there be light, light, it's like that. That's what Paul says. God has spoken new life into our hearts. He's raised us from the dead through His Word. He spoke light. He spoke new life. Like that. And notice though, um, that God alone can give life and faith and He does it by speaking. That's what we've been saying. So, I think what's, what's even more remarkable about all this is that that's actually not the whole picture. All that's true. There's something else to consider for us this morning, and um, that is that ordinarily, God uses what we say to other people to bring about new life. So God does it, and He does it through us speaking. We can see that in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. This might be the key verse for this morning. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, God uses us speaking His Word. That's that blank. I'll read it. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So when people receive the words we say in evangelism as the Word of God, we can thank God for His work of grace to cause them to believe what we say. When people receive the Word as the Word of God, we can know God has worked. But notice, what's important here is they receive that Word from us, and it goes to work in all who believe. So that's the big idea this morning at the top of your handout. To believe the Bible, people must engage with what it says. To believe the Bible, people must engage with what it says. And now I'm just summarizing those three building blocks we just put on top of each other. So one, because our God is the God who speaks. And two, because of what He speaks about His Word, it accomplishes His purposes, it does His work. And because of how people come to believe the Word, by God's work alone, we must engage people with the Word. 
we must speak the word to people, especially those who don't believe the Bible. Because to believe the Bible, people must engage with it. So now let's move on to some practical considerations. Um, two things. First, what are some reasons people commonly cite for not believing the Bible that you've heard, that I've heard? Second, how might we engage people with the Word? And then we'll, we'll come to a close and we'll have a time for asking questions and discussing all of this. So, first, what, what are the reasons people cite um, most commonly for unbelief, for not believing the Bible? So as I've thought about it, some of my own interactions, some stories from others, I've come up with four common reasons um, people say they don't believe the Bible today. The first one is contradictions. First is contradictions. People cite verses or passages or stories from the Bible that seem to be affirming two contradictory things. This is true, this is true. Well, they can't both be true. That's a contradiction. So if somebody says this to you, just try to look at the book together. Ask them this question. What do you mean by that? That's got to be one of the best, most helpful questions there is in evangelism. Just in talking with people. If you just want to understand what someone thinks and says, what do you mean by that? Like, show me where you're seeing a contradiction and let's look at it together. And so then, we discuss what they show us. And the fact is, as we all know, the fact is if God says two things, they must both be true. Because God isn't able to tell lies. God doesn't contradict himself. So we have nothing to be afraid of as we approach these conversations because all contradictions in the Bible are apparent. They're not actual. They might look like contradictions to us, but they're not actually contradictions. And so sometimes we may have trouble, just honestly, we may have trouble reconciling two things ourselves from Scripture. That doesn't mean they can't be reconciled. Just because we don't realize how they fit together doesn't mean they don't fit together. And those are very different things, those two things. So, so to just, to just to encourage us, uh, the church, for 2,000 years, has been hearing and believing God's word. And so chances are good, given that there's nothing new under the sun, chances are good that someone you know or someone from church history has dealt with the contradiction or question that you're being asked. Right? So if you don't know, ask a brother or a sister. Hey, have you ever heard this before? I'd be happy to talk about... Um, some contradictions y'all have heard in our discussion time. In fact, I think that might be one of the best, one of the best uses of our discussion time this morning is, hey, I've, someone said, I don't believe because there are contradictions, and this was what they pointed to. So we could talk about that as a group. That'd be a good use of our time. But, but let me just encourage you. Most likely, several people have dealt with whatever is being brought to you. And so we just want to do the work together of seeing how these things reconcile. So that's the first thing, uh, contradictions. The second is miracles. Miracles. Some people say they can't believe a book that speaks of actual miracles. The only problem with this reason is that science can't prove that miracles don't happen. Science can't prove that miracles don't happen. You have to come to the evidence with that presupposition if you want to rule out all miracles. So, if you say, it's not possible for people to rise from the dead. Well, you're going to have to systematically rule out all the times people have risen from the dead in order to prove that. So this is, what, this is one reason I think sometimes it can be insufficient to just jump straight to proving the resurrection happened. 
Here's why. People have the same evidence as us. We might give them loads and loads and loads of evidence. But all the while, what's happening in their mind is they're reinterpreting everything you tell them through their own worldview, which includes miracles don't happen, people can't rise from the dead. So you've got to, you've got to go at the question of miracles differently than just giving them more evidence. Now, granted, sometimes people just, uh, I don't understand how this is the best explanation for the facts. Well, great, then you can give the whole, um, the whole five-step, right? The apostles wouldn't die for something they knew was a lie. Um, the tomb was well-guarded by Roman soldiers. Crucifixion was, right? You've heard these things, I'm sure. If you haven't, I'd love to come back to them in the discussion time. We could talk more about that. Um, I'm just saying sometimes that's not actually the best way to go about it because people have started not from a neutral perspective but assuming that miracles don't happen. People don't rise from the dead, right? So when you give them an example of a time someone rose from the dead, Jesus, because he did, well, they're just going to rule out that, that occasion by reinterpreting. And, and the fact is, I think we can just simply say, how can you assume that miracles don't happen? Do you have exhaustive knowledge of everything that's ever taken place and everything that will take place? I don't. Of course not. None of us do. Right? That'd be the only way that science could prove that miracles don't happen, is if someone knew everything. But nobody does. So you've got to come at that one differently. And the simple fact is, if Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, if that's true, every single miracle in the Bible is inherently possible. Because God the Creator can make things out of the ordinary happen. So that's the second, second one, miracles. Third, antiquity, which is the word that means it's really old. Another way to say it is it's irrelevant, right? Some people say that because the Bible is so old, it can't possibly speak meaningfully to my life today. That's, that's a reason I've heard. Um, I think that we don't need to argue much for the relevance of the Bible. I think this one, um, if you'll just talk to people about your own life, it's relatively easy to prove that that's not true. Um, so... Just give an example of a time when Scripture helped you see something differently, right? Um, show them how the Bible can be read with the eyes of faith and how it speaks to all of life. Um, it might be difficult at first, I'll grant that, but if you're a Christian, you have dozens of examples. So, for example, I've been fascinated lately by how insatiable the desires of my own heart are. Like, one of my core problems, I always want more. Here's an example. This is crazy. I know it is. I'm speaking like a madman. But sometimes I'll go to my phone, I'll open the Twitter app, I'll scroll to the top, I'll close the Twitter app, and literally right then I will open the Twitter app again. Has anyone in here ever done that? It's, it's mad. Like, it's crazy. Why do I do that? Well, I think the Bible actually gives a really good answer. <laughs> right? In Proverbs, chapter 27. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Chapter 27, verse 20. It says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. Never satisfied are the eyes of man. So because of my sinful condition, my eyes are never satisfied. One of my biggest problems, as I said, is that I always want more. This is the heart of, of addiction as well, of every addiction. That we, we take things, even good things, and we make them God things. And good things don't make good gods. Only God makes, <laughs> makes a good God, right? So as John Henderson would say, whatever rules your heart, rules your life. This is, why, this is why Proverbs says that you want to guard your heart because from it flows all the springs of life. 
Like, whatever has hold of your heart is going to control everything you think, say, and do. That's why Paul uh, fought so hard not to be mastered by anything. He knew that lots of things were allowable for him, but not everything is good for him. And I think what's, what's maybe most amazing is that the Bible doesn't just explain my problem really well. It does that, kind of like we just heard in that one example. But it also tells me the only sufficient answer. So Christ says he comes to give abundant life. He's the only source of spiritual bread and living water, which never runs out. He alone can satisfy my longing heart, your longing heart, their longing heart. So as Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. My Twitter app's not coming with me. That's just one example, I think, of how the Bible speaks to all of life. And I think as we do this more, we'll grow in it and we'll be able to do it more and more. And I don't think we're investing the Bible with relevance. I think we're just showing how it's already incredibly relevant to everything we do. So that's the third one, antiquity or irrelevance. The fourth one, common reason people uh, cite for unbelief, is misuse. Misuse. Some would have us believe that we can't trust the Bible because of how people have misused it in the past. And let me just say, it's true that people have misused the Bible. People have used the Bible to justify all sorts of evil, terrible things like slavery and sexism and all sorts of other things. Okay? Um, but we have to keep in mind here that the way people use the Bible is not ultimately a fault of the Bible. Imagine you have five Bibles and five people and you send them into five different rooms, and you tell them to look at the same passage. They come out of the five rooms with five different interpretations of the same passage, the same Bible. Is the problem with the Bible or with the people? It's the difference is with the people, right? Because of our sin, because of our limitations, we don't always interpret the Bible rightly. Lots of people have failed to interpret the Bible rightly. But that doesn't prove that God hasn't been plain and clear with us. So the correct response is to pray, ask God for wisdom, and press in to study the text more. The Spirit will lead us into all truth. If somebody comes with an interpretation that just sounds off to you, test it out for yourself. Go back to the text, check with your brothers and sisters, ask your pastor, look at commentaries to see what church history has said about the passage. I think if we do this over time, more and more we'll see just how plain and clear God has been with us in His Word. And I think that's because He loves us. He's not hiding Himself from us. Instead, he's kindly revealed what's true about him and us and our world so that we can walk in wisdom and have life. So those are four common reasons people cite for not believing in the Bible. Contradictions, miracles, antiquity, misuse. And you can always follow up with more questions for clarification, even if it's something not on that list. Evidence and truth are on our side. We follow the guy who said, I am the truth. As people who follow the truth, we want to be people of truth. <laughs> Evidence and truth are on our side. Ask the follow-up question. Two of my favorite questions that if you know me, I'm sure you've heard me ask a lot, are what do you mean by that and how did you come to that conclusion? What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? There's loads of ways you can ask those two questions. Like, can you show me where you are seeing a contradiction? That's a way of saying what do you mean by that. So if you haven't heard those, write those questions down and start using them. They're great. Um, let's think about, last thing before we close, three ways we can go out from here 
and engage people with the word. This is the bottom of your handout. And again, we want to engage people with the word so more will come to believe it. So first, we can read it with them. Um, how about making time over lunch, maybe once a week, to meet up with and study the word with your non-Christian friend or coworker? We have some great resources for going through the Gospel of Mark, uh, specific, specifically in an evangelistic setting. If you are interested in that, just come see me afterwards. I can more than likely get you a copy. Um, yeah, and I'd be happy to do that. So, so read it with them. Second, dialogue over life issues. So you want to be talking to your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors about how they're actually doing. You don't want to settle for surface level, easy conversations. You want to talk about like real things, as many of you, I'm sure, are. So tell them about what you've been wrestling with and how God is meeting you with his promises, through his word, through his people. And then ask them what they're struggling with. And then go to the scriptures to show the way of Christ, to show how it speaks to life. So I heard two really good stories this week about this very thing, discussing life issues and then going to scripture to, to answer those things. Um, one brother in the church has a Muslim friend who, who told him about how he was reading the Quran and he felt like it just wasn't original and it wasn't coherent. Um, it seemed like stuff was copied and pasted from other places and it just doesn't answer, he feels like, um, injustice and evil in the world. And then this brother, one of our brothers, said, you know, that's so great. I think you're right to care about that and to wonder about that. Can I show you how I think the Bible answers that question? And then he talked about how God is going to hold everyone, call everyone to account for every thought, word, and deed. How there will be no injustice that ultimately goes unpunished, even if there are wicked judges in this world sometimes, right? So that's an example of discussing life issues. I think the third thing we can do is start a Bible study. It's a little different than, than reading the Bible one-on-one. -on -one. Instead, get a small group of people. And, and you might be amazed how much one person in the group's question will minister truth to another person in the group in a way that you couldn't possibly have planned. So if you're nervous to do that, you can ask a brother or sister in the church and they can join you. I've heard countless stories of fruit in evangelistic Bible study settings. So I think about um, one of the guys I live with, it's not Garrett, um, <laughs> who has started an evangelistic Bible study with his coworkers. He invites them to come over and work out, they get to work out for free, and then they stick around and read the book of Acts together and talk about it. That's a great example and challenge to all of us. We could do something similar. Maybe you do it over the lunch break. Maybe you come in early on a Friday morning I think you'll be surprised how open people actually are to talking about these things. I think sometimes we think that they're, they're not interested without actually having them tell us that. And sure, some people are not interested. Some people are rude. But um, I don't think that's by and large most folks, especially if you already have a friendship relationship with them. Um, so as we conclude uh, the teaching time and move into discussion and questions, I just want to summarize what we've said. The main point is this. To believe the Bible, people must engage with what it says. Ultimately, someone not believing the Bible doesn't change what God's word is and how it works. So because God has spoken to us in his word, because of how he brings about new life and faith, we must engage people with God's word in our evangelism. And you can think of it kind of like this. I told this story a couple weeks ago. But for those that weren't here, 
Picture an old-style medieval soldier, full arrayed in armor, head to toe, sword dangling at his side. You walk up to him and you say, I challenge you to a duel. The only thing is, I don't believe in swords, so you'll need to throw yours down, and then we're going to fight. What's any self-respecting soldier going to do? Pull out the sword, start cutting you with it, you're going to believe in swords really quick. It's kind of like that. Not believing in the Bible doesn't change what it is or what it does. It's kind of like that with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, which is how Scripture speaks about itself. This is the only offensive weapon that God's given us in the spiritual battle that we're all in, and it's powerful. It's powerful against Satan and sin and spiritual death, right? It can give life. When used by God's Spirit, the Word cuts to the heart. So we must use the Word or all hope in the fight is lost. So if people don't believe the Bible, what we want to do most is try asking them to read it. If and only if God works. That's how they'll start to believe what it says and receive our words in evangelism as the Word of God.